Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon, everybody. You're so welcome. The newly married Mrs. and Mr. Hyde are here. Tom and Kate were married on Thursday. I heard a, just a brilliant story that has no relevance to this morning, but I think I need to share it with you. So I left Andy McCabe here as we finished the ceremony to help make sure everything was cleared up and cleaned up. And, you know, there's no such thing as a farming wedding without hay bales. So there's a couple of hay bales at the front door. And Andy said to Pauline and Adrian, can you make sure those hay bales get moved? And Pauline said, well, sure, I'm sure there's somewhere they could, could go. And Andy said, well, other Andy made sure that I would get this sorted, so could you, could you move them? And um, Pauline, in her finery as mother of the groom, just lifted a bale under each arm <laughs> and uh, walked off to the car. Uh, I think Andy's quote to me this morning was, he said, I've never felt more like a townie in my life. <laughs> um, but it was an absolute... Uh, privilege to celebrate with you guys on, uh, on Thursday. Um, we, uh, if you haven't noticed, or if you're new to our community, maybe you don't know, but we have been celebrating our 10th anniversary this month. It is 10 years since uh, this whole thing began. And uh, what some of you don't realize is before Lagan Valley went public, there was a small group of people who were uh, meeting together to dream and scheme and pray. There were six or eight of us, and uh, some of them have remained for the entirety of uh, the last uh, 10 years. Uh, Pete and Ali Curry, who uh, couldn't be with us for the anniversary, were with us in those days, are still with us today. Pete and Ali, we have a small gift for you. Would you guys come up, be embarrassed, give them a round of applause, please. <laughs> I know, I know. Just stay there and wave at everybody. We're just going to extend the embarrassment. There we go. Thanks, guys. This happened on the, um, thanks guys. Um, somebody also told me that Alistair and Cherith were in the 9.30, uh, which I didn't actually notice, which is totally my fault. We do have a gift for them. Alistair and Cherith, if you're catching up two services in one week, we are gonna get you back next week. Um, so, wonderful. Well, look, we are gonna continue in our Colossians series. It's page 818, I think, uh, in your black Bibles. If there's a Bible close by, um, turn to page 818. It's Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at four verses uh, together this afternoon. 818 in your black Bibles. Colossians 3 verse 1. Come Holy Spirit. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, our confession in this moment is we need your voice in our life. And we recognize that when you speak, we're changed come and change us. 
In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you ever felt like things were competing for your attention. That's kind of a pretty good summary of life, right? Before we had kids, um, I used to watch uh, parents do what seemed to me then something that was completely supernatural. So uh, you'd find yourself in a conversation with somebody and they had some children, and in the middle of the conversation, maybe it's quite intense, and you're listening intently, and you're talking, and then one of their kids would come over and begin to climb up their leg, and make lots of noise, and demand their attention. And these parents seem to have this supernatural ability to continue the conversation as if none of that were happening. And before I had children, I found it impossible to ignore what was actually happening. And then I had children and realized that that's just kind of part of what comes uh, with that, that you have this ability to kind of turn off noise and continue to listen. Now, we are nearly 11 years into this thing called parenting, and we have made some progress. Um, Sometimes our kids will now say, excuse me. The bit that requires, I think, divine intervention is they they haven't quite figured out that saying those words should be followed with a pause. (laughs) That they actually approach this whole thing that excuse me means, dad, you're going to stop talking, and the person you're talking to is going to stop talking, and all of the attention is going to be placed on me, and we go around this about four or five times a week, where excuse me doesn't mean that we'll stop. Excuse me means, hey, I have a question, and I'm going to now wait patiently until you finish what you're doing and give us your, your attention. Um, the, the reality is we are living in a time when the war for our attention rages perhaps unlike any other time in human history. Uh, If you haven't seen the 2020 uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma, can I really encourage you to go home and watch it? It's really, really important. And it examines how social media is designed. This is quite terrifying when you realize this, but it is completely true that social media is designed to do two things. Nurture addiction and maximize profit. That's actually what social media is designed to do. Have you ever wondered how these so-called free platforms make millions and millions and millions of pounds? Or in that film, the way they describe it is, if you're engaged in something and you can't figure out what the product is, it's because you're the product. Your attention is the product. You see, your attention is the most valuable commodity on the planet. What has your attention? It's more valuable than crude oil. It's more valuable than solid gold. Multi-billion pound industries exist on the buying and selling of what your phone tells people you spend your life looking at. That's the world that we live in. I wonder 
Church, friends, what has your attention at the minute? I wonder, are you aware of what has your attention at the moment? I get a little notification on a Sunday that's quite terrifying from my phone, which tells me how many hours I've spent per day looking at that tiny little screen. We've been thinking about this uh, young church plant in this ancient city called Colossae where this guy called Paul is writing them a letter to help encourage them to inhabit fully the purposes of God on earth. And this young church plant was perhaps in some ways no different than us, well, minus maybe the technology and the phones part. But there was all kinds of things competing for their attention, all kinds of ideas that they were being invited to prioritize. And when Paul is writing what he thinks they need to pay attention to, he says this in verse 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Paul's saying to this young church that I think were he here, he would say exactly the same to us. There are all kinds of ideas flying about. There are all kinds of things demanding your attention right now. Be careful. Be careful because some of those ideas are actually hollow and even deceptive. Be careful not to measure your worth or status by the number of followers you have. That's hollow. Your ultimate security is not found in economic stability, although, Jesus, some of that would be nice. Paul's telling this young church to examine the ideas that are demanding their attention. Examine them. Where do they come from and where are they headed? It's a beautiful expression, a train of thought, because the ideas that we give our attention to will take us somewhere. I wonder what has your attention right now. Paul takes this further in those verses that I've just read. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What has your attention right now? Now, there's so much going on in this verse than seems obvious at first reading. And to understand that, we need to zoom out for a second. I need to remind you of the true story of the world. What's actually going on? What is reality? And what are we living in? The Bible says that the age that we are living in is called this present evil age. What does that mean? That, that means that the world is not how God intends it to be. Anyone say, that's obvious? <laughs> like the world is not 
how God intended it to be. There is a gospel, many of you familiar with, that says the world is doomed. You only need to read the news to see that. The world is a mess. It's completely doomed. And the job of the church and people who love Jesus is to metaphorically build as many lifeboats as we possibly can and then invite as many people as possible into those lifeboats to hunker down and wait until we die or till Jesus returns. That's really what this is all about. Pray the prayer, file your fire insurance, and hold tight until you go to be with Jesus or he comes to be with us. Of course, that's not the gospel Jesus preached. It's not the gospel that Paul is trying to get this young church in Colossians to inhabit and live out. It's true the world is not how God intended it to be, but into the middle of that mess, God himself in Christ Jesus stepped in, announcing that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God, the place where what God wants happens, that has moved in. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the realm of sin, sickness, demons, and death is overthrown. In Jesus, heaven invades earth. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of new creation. The Bible is quite clear that the age to come is an age where God is going to make everything new, that he's going to make his dwelling place with us. It's so funny that for years our tradition has infected us with a gospel that says following Jesus is all about going to heaven when you die, except the biblical story is all about heaven coming to earth to be with us. And in Jesus' resurrection, we see the first fruits of that new creation here and now, not there and then. God is going to make everything brand new. But in the in-between, that good and beautiful future is not something that we wait passively for. It has already begun in the middle of all of the mess and brokenness. You see, the church is not supposed to be building lifeboats so we can escape this doomed world. The The church is supposed to be building greenhouses where we can cultivate and grow and tend to the new life that God is causing to spring up among us because Jesus is alive and ruling here and now. What Paul is saying is, since you have been raised with Christ, like that for starters should maybe make us pause and think, no, no, isn't it? Like, since you're going to be raised. It should be future tense. Not past tense, but Paul says, no, no, no. You see, once you make Jesus the boss of your life, you are made new. He says, you have been raised. That's what we celebrate in baptism, the metaphor of death to sin and sickness and demons and death, that in baptism, we demonstrate that we have died to death And we've been raised to new life in Jesus. The biblical term is born again. 
It's not a very in phrase. We think maybe of right-wing American evangelicals, perhaps, with that phrase, and yet it is the perfect description that Jesus himself used to explain what happens to us when we surrender our lives to Jesus. We have been born of the future, not of flesh, but of spirit. This amazing thing happens, and I've seen it happen so many times when people make Jesus the boss of their life. They desire new things. They want to read the Bible. They want to talk about Jesus. And sadly, as they mature, sometimes those passions wane. But it's the most incredible thing. I used to see us lots when uh, I used to work for Youth for Christ, when you helped a young person who'd maybe never been to church in their life give their lives to Jesus and then help them process this desperation to read a Bible or to pray for their friends, or to share this good news that they have experienced and are now living out. The scriptures say that we've been born of the future, not of the flesh, but of spirit. That the new future that will one day cover the whole earth has been born in our lives. And our jobs are to build metaphorical greenhouses where we can tend to that new life so that it can grow, so that it can go from the greenhouse to the fields all around us. Paul is saying that we are the new creation that is coming. And because of that, we have to set our minds and our hearts on things that are above. What does it mean to set things, set our hearts on things above? It's basically, make your whole life about holy things. Forget about your marriage. That's kind of an earthly thing. Forget about your job. Like that's even an annoying boss and colleagues that get on your nerves. Bring your Bible to work and just read it and ignore everybody else. Don't worry about being a good neighbor, you know. That's earthly things. Concern yourself with more holy things than that. Of course, that's complete and utter nonsense. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. When he uses the expression things above, he's talking about the heavenly realm where whatever God wants happens. He's talking about the desires, the longings of God, which of course have so much to say about how you inhabit your marriage or your workplace or relate to your neighbor or fill in the blank. He's saying, set your hearts on the future and all that is moving towards you from that place. Your heart, your attention, since you have been made new, give all your attention to the things that God is doing around you and within you. New creation is something that has happened, but new creation is something that also needs tended to. It needs cultivated new life of any kind needs to be tended to. We see that in all kinds of different ways. Our little dog, Isla, two summers ago, gave birth to a litter of pups. Now, she, I'm quite confident, didn't remember her own birth. She didn't go to any classes about how to be a mum. Uh, we didn't read her any books about doggy parenting. I remember, <laughs> I remember at four in the morning watching 
her handle these brand new pups, watching how attentive she was as every little part of them got cleaned up. New life needs that level of attentiveness. I wonder what has your attention. Paul is saying, you've been made new. Now be careful what gets your attention. Because what gets our attention grows in our lives. Give jealousy and bitterness and unforgiveness attention. Guess what grows in your heart? The kingdom of God, the place where what God wants happens. Paul is saying to this young church to set their hearts, to give their attention to the desire of God. How do you know what that is? Have some fun reading the New Testament. Look at the life of Jesus. Watch how he behaves, what he prioritizes, who gets his attention, what gets his anger. Prioritize. Give your heart to. Put your attention on the desires of God. I need to get a little bit practical for a moment. What does that actually look like? How do we actually do this? Well, the first thing we need to realize is there is a world of difference between trying and training. So many people that I try to help in their life and follow Jesus are stuck in a model mindset paradigm or posture of trying. And their spiritual life, I'm sure none of you can relate to this, but their spiritual life looks like a roller coaster. There are months when they feel full of passion and excitement and commitment to the things of God, and there are months when they're just apathetic and tired, and it's just difficult, and that doesn't really work for them. And then maybe they come to church and hear an amazing sermon, probably by someone like Stu, and they're like, I'm in again. I'm excited again. Someone prayed for me, and the fire was lit again. I'm, I'm going to read my Bible this week. I'm going to pray some more. I'm, I'm going to think about what I can get involved in. I'm going to run 150 miles for charity, or nobody would ever do that. <laughs> but then we get tired again, and things get stale, and not in church as much, and, you know, and then someone sends us a podcast, because that's been really good for them. We start listening to this podcast, and oh goodness, we get fired up again, we're all good, and then up and down, and up and down, and it's a life of trying. It doesn't really work. It's totally different to a life of training. Stephen Hoey was in the 9.30 this morning. Stephen Hoey uh, ran the London Marathon in two hours and 47 minutes. I know. Now, my wife will tell you that I'm pretty stubborn, and that I, I have like, um, like a, a thing in my life where I can do quite a good job at ignoring pain in my body. Like, I don't really listen that well to the things that my body's saying. So, if you said to me, right, Andy, here's 26 miles, here's the, the, the course that you're going to run, and you just need to go and beat Stephen Hoey's time. Like, no amount of trying is going, no amount of ability to endure discomfort and pain is going to enable me to run a marathon in two hours and 46 minutes. It's just not going to happen. Trying is not going to make that work. Now, here's where the metaphor breaks down. I'm not sure any amount of training is going to get me to two hours and 47 minutes. <laughs> but here's what I know is true about Stephen, is he didn't just wake up one day and run two hours, 
47 minutes. There is a regimen of training in his life that has enabled him to do something that without it, it would never be possible. You see, sometimes we think our life with Jesus is supposed to be like, God, please help me to love people and care for people. And then you walk in the room and your boss has just done something crazy or you've this mad family member and all of your emotions freak out and you say something and then you're back to God going, what happened there? Like I prayed for you to help and then you didn't help. That's trying. What we need, what we need is a schedule of training that we commit ourselves to. And as we submit to training the longings of God, the desires of God are formed in us and things we never believed possible for us become normal. Training looks like praying for other people as often as we can. Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody, don't put it on the internet. Quite often here on a Sunday, I don't feel like praying for anybody. I know you're like, I need a new church. (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel like it. But I've devoted my life to a way of training so that how I feel doesn't determine what I do. And when someone says, Andy, can you pray for me? I say, of course. Nobody's ever going to ask me that again. <laughs> we choose to immerse our lives in the Scriptures. I'll tell you another secret. More often than not, I don't feel like reading the Bible. Like drinking coffee and reading the news is just way easier. Isn't that weird? Like, isn't it weird that drinking coffee and reading some obscure news item about something going on in rural Scotland is more accessible than opening the Scriptures. I wonder what that's about. What's getting your attention? Practicing community, especially when it's inconvenient. Joining a tribe in the midst of a busy life and schedule, not necessarily because you need it, but because maybe there are other people in this community that need you. Prioritizing financial generosity, especially when it hurts. Goodness me, guys, can I tell you something? I don't feel like giving my money away every month. I don't feel like it. And yet, every time we do, we open our hands and we declare that our hope and our trust is ultimately in the presence of God in our life and our family, not in our bank balance. Training, not trying, giving yourself to a way of being formed so that the longings of God become normal in your life. Learning a spirituality that is more about training than it is about trying gets us 
off the roller coaster of spiritual highs and lows based on how we're feeling. Since you have been raised with Jesus, since you have been made brand new, put your heart on things above that come alive here below. In a moment when economic uncertainty demands the attention of our hearts, when political instability and dysfunction calls for the attention of our minds, when wars and rumors of wars occupy the attention of our very souls, I wonder could the church be found captivated by something else? Building greenhouses where the new life of heaven begins to bear fruit here and now, where we tend to that fruit, cultivating it, allowing it to grow so that we can take it from the greenhouse and plant it in the fields all around us for the sake of the world. The beauty, the grace, the life of Jesus breaking into a broken world with hope big enough to stand against all the chaos and pain, it comes from what you are giving your attention to. If you're able, will you stand? Step one, put your attention on Jesus. Step two, commit to a life of training with him. We're gonna begin with step one. Unfortunately, I can't do step two for you. <laughs> but step one is we set down whatever it is, whatever it is, and look, we haven't even talked about <laughs> what's going on in Westminster this week. There is so much right now. There is so much right now vying for your attention. We begin by setting that aside and putting our attention on Jesus. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Rest on us. Fall upon us.